You're listening to the Skylight Books Podcast. We're an independent, general interest bookstore putting great reads in the hands of people in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles. Hosted by resident Skylighters, we're here to bring you new and exciting author conversations, group reads, and bookseller chats. Happy listening. Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome back to the Skylight Books Podcast. I'm your host, Natalie, and today we are so excited to welcome Megan Giddings to talk about her new novel, The Women Could Fly. Megan Giddings is an assistant professor at Michigan State University and affiliate faculty at Antioch University's Low Residency MFA. Her first novel, Lakewood, was one of New York Magazine's top 10 books of 2020 and NPR Best Book of 2020, a Michigan Notable Book for 2021, a finalist for two NAACP Image Awards, and was a finalist for an LA Times Book Prize in the Ray Bradbury Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Speculative category. Megan's writing has received funding and support from the Barbara Deming Foundation and Hedgebrook, and she lives in the Midwest. Thank you so much for being here, Megan. Thanks for having me. I am so, so excited to talk about this book, and it is definitely set in a, a world of its own. So do you want to give us a little introduction and read a little something for us? Yeah, so this book takes place in a world that is on the surface a lot like our own but maybe there are witches (laughs) and I think it also exaggerates a lot of the systemic oppressions that people kind of just are used are used to and think okay this is fine because I'm used to it or sometimes you might be like no this is fucked everyone around you is like no this is just how life is and we get used to it I'm I'm sure you and I are going to get more into it but one of the things I wanted we're definitely going to get into it (laughs) yeah is exaggerate those things and I think the easiest way for me as a writer to exaggerate things is to take a turn toward like the supernatural or the unreal because it, it feels a little less didactic, but also it gives me the space too to play around a little bit, even in the things that make me upset. So this is the beginning of The Women Could Fly. And I'm going to read a little bit of chapter one. And if you want to find out what happens next, you're going to buy the book from Skylight because that's <laughs> why you're here. Okay. On the day we all agreed that, yes, sure. Okay, it's time. My mother was dead. I went to the storage unit where my dad kept all her stuff. I told myself if I wanted, I could burn it. Take all the boxes and clothes and love things out into the parking lot. Kerosene, mashes, patience, ash. Instead, I decided I would sort through it, choose a few things to save, clean the rest out and save my dad some time and money. I am a practical person. The unit smelled like black and mild jazzes, but I wasn't sure why. There were faint whiffs of her when I opened different boxes. Cedar, mint, Rosemary. I want to be precise because every time I'm precise about her, she returns for a half second. Her hands on the fork and spoon in a way where I can see the dirt beneath her fingernails. Saturday mornings that she spent spread out on the sofa, legs crossed and eyes on the ceiling, a forgotten book on her stomach. My mother's hand on my forearm, her skin shining brown and telling me I need to get lotion. She will not have her child walking around ashy. Her fingers pushing my hair away from my eyebrows and saying, just because your forehead is big doesn't mean it isn't beautiful. Look, there you are. I say it aloud again. Yes, sure. She's probably, no, definitely dead. Say it again like you believe it. 
My mother is dead. My voice was flat yet hesitant. A box marked hair care, pomade, flat iron, a wig I had never seen her wear, synthetic smell, her books and research. My mother's biggest passion was researching our lineage. My great, 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 great grand aunt was burned for witchcraft. <laughs> this is the first time I've read from this, but I did not mess up the grades. So, so me. <laughs> <laughs> the last time I tried to read this, I got really mad at myself about all those grades. All right, back to the reading. Um, birds that stilled, eyes that grew bright, their beaks and feathers following her as she spoke, a refusal to take a husband, the accounts about her disagreed, a story my mother preferred. Our ancestor was just an ordinary woman, an ordinary woman in the wrong place who upset the wrong man, and he used the laws of the day to teach her and all the other women in her village a lesson. Not a fun story, but an honest one. The story my father, my grandmother, my aunt, everyone else in my life refers to tell. My ancestor was a witch. Her burning took place on a beach. The heat from the fire so hot it turned sand into glass. My grandma has a bracelet made from the beach she swears came from that day that has been passed on from eldest daughter to eldest daughter. Our ancestress, when she couldn't handle the fire any longer, flew off the pillar and plunged her scorched feet into the sea. The smoke and steam sifted and became a week long fog. It crashed ships, blanketed the town, made the people who had tried to burn her afraid to leave their homes. My grandmother's records say this ancestor went on to the United States. Her older sister's records say this happened on Oak Island in South Carolina. My other great aunt says, no, this was New York. And school is like everyone else, like you. I was raised to believe that witches are still alive and living among us today, although most have died in the great eradications. My family was divided. My mother believed witches were a hoax still perpetuated today to keep women afraid and oppressed. My worst cousins, the ones who are loudest on the internet, believe that witchcraft is maybe an illness, like if you're in the wrong room at the wrong time. Although for some it devolves into, if you devoted for the wrong person, you are a witch. If you vaccinate your children, you are a witch and are, making, and are risking turning them into witches and so on. And my uncles on my dad's side say, shop about witches and get back to the kitchen. Dinner should be served every day at 5.30 sharp. My mother pointed to the laws, how women are encouraged to be married by 30, how unmarried women starting at 28 have to do quarterly check-ins to the Bureau of Witchcraft to be tested. And what did being a witch have to do with being married? Didn't that seem suspicious? And what about how magic makes it tied to gender expression? How science can't even prove any links? Doesn't that seem a little too perfect? It seemed like that made it even easier to oppress two groups of people, women and anyone who did not conform to cisgender standards. She believed that most of what people believed was magic was actually just a way to wash out the accomplishments of women, make their hard work small. All her books, medicine, gender, herbalism, art, protests, sitting in those wilting cardboard boxes, waiting for her hands to pick them up again to flip the pages. Once, one of my dad's brothers asked him if he was uncomfortable with the way Tiana thought about things. Wasn't he afraid she'd be accused of witchcraft? And worse, what did he think my mom's nonsense was doing to my brain? I love Joe's brain, my dad would say, and often that would be enough to change the subject. I picked one of the books up, one with a blue cover, flipped the pages, and did what I used to do when I was a teenager, pretending for just a moment that my hands were her hands. At home, my mom would look at my schoolwork and roll her eyes. The burnings that happened were a very bad thing. You should never accuse a woman of witchcraft unless you have a very good reason to, like she was actually hurting your family. And most witches don't even hurt people now. They're performers and artists. 
They stay away for all our safety. She never hung any of my A pluses on the fridge the way other moms did. Once I heard her whisper to my father, I'm not celebrating lies. And I'll end there. Thank you so much for giving us a little uh, insight to this, uh, this Midwest, this little bit heightened supernatural. There's, like you said in your intro, it is uh, our world a little bit. A lot of the still, same things are still happening, but you've got a few dashes of fun or maybe not fun, depending on who's, <laughs> who's looking at it, uh, things tied in there. So I'd love to start, which you gave us a little bit in your intro, but the idea to tell this story, kind of, I guess, where it started, if it started with Joe or even her mother um, or a certain relationship and how you decided that it would be told more, um, more interestingly or more the way you wanted to, if you added in a little supernatural rather than like you said, something that we're all still dealing with, same shit, different day, contemporary topic. <laughs> so it actually started, I, I started writing this in 2018. And I started writing it where it was, I was obsessed with this folktale where it, it was about a witch who she curses a much younger woman to spit pins. And sometimes, and I, I read one version where it was about like the witch being jealous of her youth and beauty. And I read another one where it was like a version where it interpreted as the young woman was seen looking desirously at a man. And then the witch was like, no, you're not gonna do that in public. <laughs> and the original way I was approaching the book was it was gonna be about a young black woman who it's just like, in a Midwest town, and this is when she's a teenager, and she sees like the hot white guy from her school and she like flirts with him in public. And she thinks this is a win, but an older white woman sees her and curses her to always spit pins when she desires anyone who's white. And that is obviously not what this book is about. <laughs> and there's about I want to say like 50 to 70 pages of this version of it, where it's, it's that thing where like you've worked on a big project for a long time. Like at 2018 is when Lakewood went out for sale to editors. Mm -hmm. And my, my process is if it goes out for sale, you start the next thing because you never know what's going to happen. And also I, I, I'm like a border collie. I have to have something to do <laughs> or I'm going to get into trouble. <laughs> like it's just... <laughs> It, it's just how I'm set up, but and usually it's a creative thing that I have to be doing. Um, but I, like I realized, I, I thought I would realize sooner, but it, it took me months of the work to realize I was just kind of getting like liquid out of my system in some mm -hmm. ways. Like there are a lot of similarities, I think, to the idea of this original version of the book I was writing. And I kept thinking a lot about what what was I actually trying to say here with this metaphor of someone making someone else spit pins because they desired the wrong person? And I, I had to do a lot of journaling. I, I don't know why journaling is such an embarrassing word to me sometimes. <laughs> I don't know why. It, I, 
I think it's because it I mean, feels like so private to me that whenever I say yeah. journaling, it it feels like we're gonna get somewhere a little too like tender for me. Mm-hmm. But um, I realize one of the things I want to think a lot is about how even our desires, especially if you're bi and I'm bi, but your desires are policed by a lot of people. People. And, and I'm using a generalizing people, I'm not saying like every single person is like, you know what, by people, that's enough, you don't exist. But there's always that kind of layer of thought, like, am I, am I with this man because I'm trying to conform? Am I not good enough to be with this woman because she's only been with other women? And I, I like everybody. So it, and even when the other people are bringing that, there's still kind of like that structural level of people just say like these, like, just like remarks. And then it kind of spirals you out of your person, like still trying to adjust to the idea that, oh yeah, I'm attracted to everybody. And so I wanted to write a book that way where I want to think really deeply in some ways about that level of feelings you have about many other people. And I think that's kind of some of the heart of the book, but it's also just in general about, I think what's been on a lot of people's minds, or at least probably the type of people who listen to this podcast minds is the way that, especially in the United States, I I don't feel qualified to be talking about any other country than the United States. And I feel barely qualified to talk about the United States sometimes, but it is about how much our country polices nonconformity and how, I mean, it, it's not a surprise. I mean, we, we just spent this summer learning that the Supreme Court believes that any person who can give birth doesn't have a right to privacy. They don't have the right to make a medical decision that could save their lives or could just give them the feeling of being in control of their bodies. And I mean, I think for a lot of us, we didn't wanna accept that this was coming, but I, I still remember when our, the person formerly known as the president of the United States, cause I don't feel like saying that man's name. Um, I, I mean, we should all still remember who was elected because I felt like every single person I knew was panicking about their rights. And if you weren't panicking about your rights, well, you voted for them. Congrats, you made everything worse for the rest of us. That's gonna make somebody mad, but who cares? Who cares? Um, <laughs> I'm always making people mad a little bit. But I, I started to just get into the root of like, The ways we, the ways we try to make the indignities of not being a cis, straight, rich, white man cute in this country, because we do a lot of trying to make things bad seem a little cute so that we can endure it. I wanted to think a lot about how, how I could write something that made me feel very personally just 
I don't know. I was, it's strange because in some ways there are more aspects of my life, like living in a small, predominantly white Michigan town that's a little weird in Lakewood than there are in the Women Could Fly. But I still feel that more of my, it's so itchy to say this book, um, because the characters and circumstances, they're not me. But in terms of like emotional availability, and that's gonna sound maybe a little woo, but I mean, in terms of working out things I've deeply felt emotions about and trying to think about different angles of them or giving myself space to think of things and viewpoints that I haven't allowed myself to do. I think a lot more of that is in this book. I got to be a little more self-righteous writing Lakewood and writing this book, I had to be, I had to be much more tender while writing it because Joe's a character who's filled with a lot of contradictions. She's mm -hmm. a little lost. And I think that she reflects some of the ambivalence we all feel in our 20s, maybe. I guess there's some magic people who feel no ambivalence in their 20s. But I might be very scared to meet them, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> well, and I mean, I would agree that that Joe is lost on a certain level, but there is sort of that fine line too of um, like some sometimes when although someone might call you lost, but they not they may not be able to see how much um, like awareness you have of um, of your position or the kind of interrogating you're doing in order to find your way out of being lost. Um, yeah, and also, and you're right. I think Joe, yeah, Joe very much is um, like to to your credit, and I hope that it it worked out for you what you were hoping it did because Joe is so she may be lost, but she's asking all of those questions, and she's so she's so tender with herself and with the people around her. Um, and I feel like that's such a, that's such a refreshing thing with a character. I feel like a lot of novels right now in particular, just like contemporary fiction have like your main character is stumbling on purpose or not being forthcoming or not telling people things that then cause tension, just kind of that classic trope of omitting things and mm -hmm. that then moves things forward. But this does the complete opposite where the the conversations are not easy. Um, the conversations that Joe has with Preston are not easy. They're some of like the most difficult. Um, but her honesty with him and with herself allows them both the room to do what they need for themselves and for each other. Um, and it's it's a really beautiful like part of her character. I'm really, I'm really glad that worked for you. Like, that, <laughs> sorry, that was really meaningful to hear, Natalie. Um, <laughs> it, it's that, and I think also, even though I, I did when I started speaking mean lost in the traditional senses, we're talking about it too. It. You're, you're making me think of something I, 
I tell, I, I teach undergrads a lot. And one of the things my undergrads, they worry a lot about is when they're starting something and they get stuck. And, and I mean, it's normal. It's not just an undergrad mm -hmm. thing, but especially with them, they're, they're more likely to say like, what can I do to get out of this? And one of the things I tell them, and sometimes they're deeply reassuring and sometimes they're like, oh, this is a nightmare. Is that when, when you're making something, especially if you wanna write a novel, like I teach a novel writing class for them. And I, and I tell them, you, you usually know that the book is going to be something if you can get lost a little bit, if you're just writing, but you also have to teach yourself, okay, I know that I'm lost. Now I need to go back and think deeply about like, what do I actually wanna say here? And I, it's kind of a life skill though, when you realize that you're lost or a little overwhelmed and being able to notice it and say to yourself, what do I need right now? What actually is gonna make getting lost feel like an adventure? What's gonna make it feel like a story I can tell other people rather than a failure? Because I, I think so often because I mean, we live in productivity culture. It, it's hard, especially, I know someone's gonna roll their eyes at me. I just wrote, I, I just published two books and I wrote this book during a pandemic. But there's so many other things I also started writing that I got lost or deviated on. And that's slowly becoming what I think is my third book. And it, it's sometimes like giving yourself like the grace and patience to say, this might not be the right time because I, I can look at all these creative things I've done, but it's not pointing toward anything. I don't yeah. know what I'm trying to say because sometimes you're just too close to yourself. And I think that's both like art, you're so, too close to yourself. And it's also aging because you're still getting used to who you are. And especially in your twenties, if you're someone who's had like the traditional upbringing of parents guiding you for a lot of your life and then college gives you purpose and the people around you. And then when you start a job, no one wants to really give you purpose with most jobs, unless you have a really weird or a really cool job. <laughs> it, you, you have to start getting to know yourself because you're the only person who cares enough now. Yeah. Um, you mentioned like aging and growing up and being in your twenties. And there was, uh, something that Joe says a little bit, uh, further into the book that I thought was, um, was interesting because I felt like, I don't know if I felt like I could relate as much as I think I've seen it just happen in observation as well, just about thinking that you were going to like learn to love things or be like just grow into things or be more of like more adaptable or even just um taking on more um but your your ability to do that like changes still as you keep growing up like you may be able to do that and then you may stop doing it for a little bit um, 
but things just sort of adding on to and being the essence of who you are as a person. Um, <clears throat> but the flexibility of that, especially as the world changes too, like after certain elections or large events, <laughs> you kind of like you, well, the, the world is, and life is so full of befores and afters, but you don't realize mm -hmm. that they are befores and afters until that thing happens. Um, and the, the idea of Joe learning so many different things, both about her, like, ancestors and in her lineage but then also about herself um and her relationships it doesn't lead to her being more lost but she she is kind of trying to figure out if she does even know the essence of who she is um and trying to figure it out which is something that was really enjoyable to kind of follow because I feel like it's very um it is very um, easy to connect to for most people. I would, I like you've said multiple times, I don't want to speak for everyone, but I feel like if you can't, if you don't feel lost, I'm not sure how. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, that was a really complicated question. I, I'm thinking yeah, a lot about it was, how you put it. it was, it was, a, it was no, but like it was a... really, it was really well said too, because there's a lot of things that I could touch on. But, but I think one of the things that you captured really well, just in how you said it, is that there, you're, you're making me think a lot about whether or not this book is actually a coming of age book. Because on the one hand, like the traditional way we, we say people come of age, and, and I've, I've actually argued that my first book, Lakewood, is a coming of age book, but one that de-emphasizes sex because so often the coming of age book is you are a woman who has sex mm -hmm. and that changes you forever, which, haha, sure. <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, it's the traditional one, especially if you grow up reading YA books of the 80s in mm -hmm. 90s. Yeah. And I, I caught a, a coming of age book for the rest of us where you're an adult and you're in charge and you're going to make a lot of mistakes, even though on the surface you're making the right mistake because you're making a lot of money for your family. And for this book, I... I think the heart of what I'm thinking about in response to your question is what what does it mean to come of age when so often we talk about coming of ages in relation to our personal choices. You chose to have sex. You chose to go to college. And what does it mean if you're constantly realigning yourself to more oppression? to another crisis? Is that another form of coming of age that you have to keep doing over and over in your life because you're learning a new way to live? It fundamentally changes who you are as a person. It makes you stop and consider the way I lived before is gone. 
I am no longer a virgin of the climate apocalypse. I, I am a grown mature woman now of the climate apocalypse because my house flooded. This feels more like an academic essay that I should probably try to write. Um, well, I think, I think also, like you said, you're not, you're not sure if this is uh, a coming of age book or you're questioning it. And then that made me think about how I was trying to think of certain like YA, um, maybe like 15 to 20, like teens, um, mm -hmm. like that coming of age and then your 20s and um I'm 31 and mm -hmm. I I am no I am I am never going to stop coming of age and right. when you said that I think I was thinking about how that that term especially in like stories or literature um like if you tell someone that they are coming of age and we recommend them books for or coming of age stories that people like coming of age stories yeah. and it's a whole genre um but everyone is always coming of age like you said every new experience or thing you have to do for the first time is a coming of age in some way and sort of confining it to a certain time of your life um may lead people to get lost or feel lost when they are at a certain age that falls outside of that. Yeah, and I, I think even if we kept pushing at this, we could tie it into the way that there's so many TikTok teens or 20 year olds <laughs> being like, oh, 30, it's over. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I, I can't, I can't wait for you to understand how delicious life can be <laughs> when you turn 30. And not in the way I did this happen to you at your 30th birthday. Like when I turned 30, the number of people older than me who are like, this is where life gets good. Yep. <laughs> or like yep. really hyped it up. And it was like, in some ways, it was like, yeah, sure. Sure. But <laughs> sure. But I mean, like the pleasure of being. 30 and it, it goes even back to what we were saying earlier you have a relationship with yourself you you've built this foundation in your 30s and yeah you keep surprising yourself but that's also some of the deliciousness of life you know you're living because you keep changing and you keep having to recommit yourself to yourself and then on on that idea of um well, like knowing yourself and, and knowing what you want and being able to articulate that and know what you want really changes so much of how you interact with and, and move through the world. And as much as this world in the women could fly, it, it is similar to our own, but there, believe it or not, is like another level of restrictions yeah. <laughs> on like there there you've added in the element of witches who are are then also restricted by the government in certain ways and so on top of the sort of everyday restrictions which when joe is having to navigate them 
I feel like they do take the forefront over um, like the witch restrictions that are put on everyone, whether or not they are a witch, because the suspicion is almost more um, is more damning than than the thing itself, which I think you say a few times too, that the accusation, once the accusation is made, like you're done, um, Mm -hmm. that it's so harmful to your existence in any way. Um, But the part of that restriction is that I think by 30, you, you have to be registered as unmarried if you are not married. Um, And some and at 30, things. you have to give up your job and life yep. and everything. And essentially be like, not. yeah, if you're not. And so um, the the societal push of that, the restrictive push of that, um, Jo has so many conversations with herself and um, and others about not thinking that that is the worst thing. There are some people who who want that and you have there's this very beautiful paragraph that I loved so much and I won't read it for everyone so they can go read it themselves but um just about Joe really kind of agonizing over the fact that if she would have wanted that if she did want that that would be fine and she would be happy to want that and have it but she only wants to want it um if it is what she actually wants um and it sounds like and she she has this conversation with herself and others so many times like multiple times because it is constantly being pushed at her by everyone um her father and her friends and her uh and her job and everybody um and it is kind of that that situation of like, do I just suck it up and and do it? Is it going to be easier to get through life just following the rules or whatever? Or like you talked about with the original idea of like giving into our desires and whatever the like that desire part like when you mentioned desire and we talked about want earlier too um sort of two sides of the same coin there and that I think for me was definitely sort of the through line of Joe's character and a lot of the overall theme of the book was just this idea of want Mm -hmm. and knowing what you want no matter how lost she may have felt or she may appear um she knows what she wants and that will always affect every decision that she's trying to make no matter who's involved yeah i you really get joe um (laughs) i loved her a lot (laughs) you're kind of touching on something i haven't got a chance to talk about where i've been thinking a lot about how we even approach desire for people who are not men. Because so often you see in books criticism, you you see the phrase female desire, and even that has to be gendered. And it's really, it really bugs shit out of me. 
because what, why does even desire have to be gendered? But there is something very distinct to me as a writer and a thinker between desire and wants. And I, I sometimes wonder if this book had been about Joe, J-O-E, Thomas, if, if instead of talking about wants, because there was another person who brought up wants to me, if we would be just saying desires, if, if there is also a gendered approach to how we even talk about like this, like men are allowed to desire things. And then we say that women want things. I'm still teasing this out. I don't know. But I, I'm thinking a lot about how I think so often female characters might be allowed to desire something conventional. Like they, they want the hot boyfriend or, and, and this is not at all to dunk on Sally Rooney, but I think a lot, I've been thinking a lot about the end of her third book. Am I allowed to spoil that? It's been a year. Um, honestly, I, I think it's fair. I think everybody who wants to have read it, read it the second okay. it came out. <laughs> I, I ended up actually reading it. Um, I, I had a, um, what is it called? I had a student doing an independent study with me last fall and she wanted to read it with me. And all, mm -hmm. a lot of her stories are very um, feminist and she was really interested in seeing how Sally Rooney was gonna approach all these things. And it was, it was fascinating to both of us that it ended so conventionally that one of them is like, I got the guy and we're gonna have some kids. <laughs> and the other one's like, I got the guy and COVID's here, but we live in a beautiful home. It's great. And, and there are things I admire a lot about the book, but I'm still kind of stuck on why the bow? Why, why leaning into this idea of, I want this stable, like this stable cis, heteronormative life. I don't know, maybe I'll find a way to email her and ask like, what is going on there? But, um, well, and I think, I think people also, um, not like with, with this situation in particular or mm -hmm. comparing your two most recent books at all, but I think a lot of people are still, um, either uncomfortable with or um or or don't like like there's those two the two options which are essentially girl gets guy or or girl chooses her either ends up alone chooses herself or doesn't choose the guy and then that has to sort of be a cliffhanger almost because then you need to know like what guy she does yeah. end up with <laughs> there needs to be a sequel to that one um <laughs> but there's yeah there's like a a discomfort in uh the non-ending which I know a lot of people um I 
I could maybe say it's like 50 50 people that I talk to like an um uh, an ambiguous ending mm-hmm. and others need a, a yeah a, like need what how it ended and there needs to be no ambiguity or like room for guessing they don't want to guess they want you to tell them yeah how, oh how it, yeah Lakeland tour <laughs> um every every place I went to when I was doing digital events for Lakewood there was always someone well when is the next book coming out so we can see what happens and I and I would say oh if I ever wrote another book in the that universe it would it would be about the mother it would probably be set in like the late 80s early 90s it would be about Desiree and the choices she made and it would touch more on how much things that happened in the 80s and 90s they're they're being regurgitated right now we can look at it we can see that's happening and would let me write about history in a way that I'm interested in and I and I always have this I I can't imagine that I'm ever going to write an ending to a book that people aren't going to be wildly divided over because well, it's no fun <laughs> it's no fun but also I I think one of the things about me as a writer that maybe is the most traditionalist part of me or maybe it's just I don't like making money and I'm always trying not to make money <laughs> is that I I treat books like living we don't we never get a true sense of ending even if we die we don't get to see maybe we do i'm not a scientist i haven't died yet but we it doesn't seem like we actually get the luxury of getting to actually see everything that happened in our life and getting to put it into an ordered meaning that makes us feel good so that when we go on it's okay i did it i can see the full story of my life it's got a beginning middle and end and it's got a beautiful conclusion written in the five paragraph style that makes you think, ah, yes, something important happened here. And I, and I think that's also, I have like a, I don't know, just a little bit of bitterness to the idea that we treat novels like they are the five paragraph essay. That just because your teacher when you were 18 and your brain was still a little mushy, don't worry, my brain was mushy at 18 too. <laughs> um, but you think that's the best way to write is that you might as well slap an in conclusion we all learned a valuable lesson and that that obliterates life why would I spend hundreds of pages and hundreds of hours of my life trying to capture something that feels alive only to kill it by being like let me wrap everything up for you let me make you feel good I think that's also why I'm fascinated by writers who can do that and feel good mm-hmm. and feel like it, like accomplish their artistic goals, that they can do this thing and it doesn't make them like, like I'm clearly a little salty just talking to this with you. <laughs> <laughs> but there's also, and like the, the, the childlike idea of imagination um Mm -hmm. just in general like the the idea I guess especially when you're 
you're dealing in a world that is not purely our world. Um, like, I don't want, we're not going to do any major spoilers, but part of what Joe realizes that she wants um, is this thing that in, in our world would seem impossible. Um, mm -hmm. This, this idea that she has, um, but it's a, it's a beautiful idea about community and ways that you can build it. Um, mm -hmm. And it's this idea that she has is sort of a like a beautiful speculative idea that could only come about in speculative fiction and it's an idea that I hope like people will start to like look at or use as like an idea it's such a beautiful building block um and the the idea of figuring that out or having this idea and then doing everything you can to make that want tangible um, or trying to achieve it and not in the um, sort of intense way of trying to achieve a goal so that you feel a purpose, mm -hmm. but um, like you said, the joy of bringing something to life to then let it exist um, and see what happens when other people then get to touch it or come in contact with it is a really, it's such a beautiful idea that I think also we keep kind of touching that fear a little bit that people mm -hmm. are afraid of, like, because once you, once you bring something to life and it then exists, um, there's a little bit of that, like, okay, now what, what, now what do I have to do? Or what now, if this is as this is what I wanted and now I have it. So now what? Yeah. You also did an incredible job there of avoiding all spoilers. Well, I know. still letting me know what you're thinking about. I was like, I think you're going to know what I'm talking about. Yeah. And if you've read the book, you know what we're talking about. I know. But I'm going to try to answer this in a way too, where if you don't, where if you haven't read the book yet, you really should. Um, yeah. What I you can see my brain doing all the mechanics of trying not to spoil the book. I know me too. I was like this thing. But um you know, and stop talking about the actual thing. I, I want to get into the root of that desire. And some of it is just the way. Some people have asked me, let's start over. Here we go. During, during doing this like pre-press for the book, some people have asked me like, how present do you feel right now? Do you feel, how, how do you feel that your book is coming out in the wake of Roe being overturned? How, how does it feel to have a book that touches on a lot of things that are happening? Because I, there are like people like hotlines for people to report women for being witches are, are part of the book and there, there's a pretty close analog to many things that are happening in texas and florida and the answer the answer isn't like i i feel present i i feel like a person who's 
paying attention to the way things are happening in this country. I feel like a person who actually has time and access to read many news sources because I don't have kids and I get free subscriptions to the universities I've been affiliated with. And those two things alone give me much more time and space to pay attention to not just what's right in front of me. I get to look at these things and I, I get engaged with these things because I care a lot. Not that people who don't have the time don't care a lot, but it's why I spend my time reading the news and also trying to be a little strict with myself about when and how I consume news because it, it, it hurts. It hurts all the time now, right? Although yesterday was good. I mean, Kansas said no abortion is healthcare. Let's do this, which good job, Kansas. <laughs> but in the midst of everything, I wanted to think a lot about what it means to be a person right now and how often it feels like we're told explicitly, you don't, you don't owe anyone anything. And how often our culture just makes it implied. And anyone listening is, I'm going to do a disclaimer here. You're free to have any feelings you have about capitalism. I'm not here to judge you. But one of the things that I take a lot of issue with, with capitalism and being in societies where even, even our schooling is built around capitalism. The people with the most access to money have the most access to resources and therefore their school districts tend to be the ones that send students to get better and better educations. And I don't know, maybe that's the thing when it, there's that joke of like, what radicalized you? I think that's what radicalized me back in high school was real when it's when I found that out. Mm -hmm. And how affirmative action is just this band-aid to cover up for the fact that societally, as long as you keep oppressing everybody who is not rich and white, well, guess what? You're also oppressing their ability to get a good education. And it's why I, I have really complicated feelings about affirmative action because I I, I think of it as this Band-Aid when really we should be thinking about ways where everybody should be getting an equal opportunity education from like the very beginning of their education. And then once you start thinking about like those factors, it's really hard not to think of the different ways that you just keep accepting the idea that beyond any circumstance that you can control as a person, especially at the beginning of your life, the odds are very high that you're coming into this, into your life with some degree of oppression, like oppression is a circle. We all have to figure out the ways that we are both powerful and privileged in ways in which we are oppressed. It's part of being an intersectional human and thinking deeply about that. But once you start thinking about those things and how often everything is meant to just think about how to get ahead, how to accumulate wealth, 
how to make sure the people in your family accumulate wealth rather than think about okay how do we how do we keep the planet alive how do we start thinking beyond just the scope of our limited gaze and want to be tender and kind and available to other people and that was kind of the root of the solution or like this obsession for Joe. And I think it even reflects what you said about her character. I think so often the way that people are taught to build conflict in novels is to have someone be deliberately withholding or to have a deep secret. But when you're thinking a lot about a character who might be obsessed with how can I actually be available to people? And I think it especially makes sense for someone like Joe who's mother disappeared. Her dad is emotionally withholding. He's not emotionally available. Like, of course, she'd want radical emotional availability. Of course, she would want to be direct. And I think so often that novelists, we're, we're taught to avoid directness. Like a traditional craft book often encourages you to withhold yeah. so withhold. that you reveal something yeah and then there will be the reveal in the third act and that will make it all worth it but i think a lot of the ways that we actually come into conflict with people yeah they're still withholding and secrets but i think it's also sometimes more alive when you're direct with someone about what you need or what you want and either they can't hear it or the more human thing is they hear it and they can try their best, but, and they can even be a good person, but sometimes it just still isn't the exact right thing you need or it isn't, it's just for whatever complicated reasons one of you might have to change or one of you might have to compromise. And sometimes it's beautiful. Like that's, that's the beauty of marriage is you keep, if your marriage is healthy, you keep sharing these things with each other. And sometimes it's just fine to be like, okay, this is how it is. And sometimes you might have to compromise. And sometimes you're like, uh oh, <laughs> we're in danger here. <laughs> but it, it's also part of the ways that you keep building like these beautiful romances, either your marriage or your friendships or just the tenderness of letting someone in and truly seeing you. And sort of building off of that and then uh, because we have time for one more, one more question and I'm going to make it a doozy. Um. Okay, good. <laughs> I love hard questions. Um, and so, and I'm also going to try and do it. I think it'll be a light enough spoiler that it's, or it's vague fine. enough that it doesn't give anything away to people. But um, Joe, at a certain point in the book, goes to uh, visit this other place. And um, she is like enthralled by it a little bit. She has, it's a place she's never been. So she's obviously, um, like enthralled by it a little like mesmerized by it 
mm-hmm. um, and it seems idyllic and uh, and perfect in some ways. And the person that she sort of mentions that to reminds her, we're all just people and um, no place with people can ever be perfect. And I, and that was such a, it was such like interpreting that from like Joe's reaction to it and the whole exchange, which again, everyone go read this book, please. So you can listen to this and then engage with it yourself and with (laughs) everyone else. But um, I want to, I'd love to kind of like close us out and I feel like it, um, it encapsulates a lot of what we've talked about um, and sort of what we've built up so far, but that idea of perfection and trying to achieve certain things. Um, yeah, and so, so many of the, of the things we've talked about, like building something beautiful, mm-hmm. why, would, why would you do that just to then either shut it down or end it? Right. um, and trying to achieve this height of capitalism and like play along with that long game that no one can ever truly win. Um, Mm -hmm. and figuring out what you, what you want and what you truly desire. Like so many of the things that people see as like our obstacles, um, in making our way through life are just like innate human flaws. Like humans are flawed and, um, and therefore like their flaws and original sins will taint everything else and it will never be perfect. But then I guess it could very easily be said that mostly the cis white straight rich men uh, think that they are perfect (laughs) (laughs) and that perfection is that ideal and is attainable um and therefore any places that they are are -hmm. perfect um yeah and so and any place without them uh, or with women possibly in at least in the context of this book too are then not right um and um and so that that idea, which also kind of builds into our idea of building community, and like you mentioned, whatever point in time radicalizes you as an individual, um, kind of not believing that or or believing that there can perfect doesn't have to be the attainable mm-hmm. idea. You can exist in a place with other people. Um, and it can be perfect in its own way, but it also depends on whose idea of perfect it is. Um, I just talked yeah. around so many things and I don't You did. Um, it made sense. <laughs> no, it made sense because like at the heart of it, you're, you're dissecting like what it means to have a utopia in, or how we decide what even is a utopia, what what is the perfect place for people to live? And how do we treat one another? And how is it regulated? And one of the things that super ties in the book, and there are many black thinkers and theorists who are really interested in the idea of like, how do we build communities? 
how do we, I mean, it goes, it goes even further beyond like the Black Panthers, but I mean, it's still like the way that the Black Panthers have this idea of let's do universal childcare, let's do preschool, let's get these kids eating. And our government was like, no, we don't want that. And we're gonna make sure to villainize you all for ever. <laughs> but I, one of the books I think a lot about is, and my brother, he, he's a PhD student in black studies. He, he recommended this book to me because it was both touching on things I'm really interested in about spirituality and emotions, but it's called Black Utopias. It's by Jaina Brown. And I, and I bring this book up because you can usually find it at like a bookstore, I think for about $30. And, and other things I could reference, you kind of have to have JSTOR access or there are things that are a little more inaccessible. But this is a soft cover and it is a pretty academic book. Yeah. But it, it argues a lot in some ways to ignore like the idea that people, people can behave perfectly. And it makes us consider like what actually is a community? How, how are we available to each other? How, how do we build beautiful things in the face of a culture that keeps telling us, no, the only way to get further is through, again, money or exploitation. How do you attempt to live a life where you don't wanna exploit other people? It also gets into spiritualism and also the ways that we might use different forms of healing. And this is not to say at all, like, don't use. <laughs> I, I get very scared when I say different forms of healing. It's like, uh-oh, Megan's anti-vax. No, I love vaccines. <laughs> I just had COVID a few weeks ago and it would have been a nightmare if I had not been vaccinated. Um, oh my God. Also, I'm sorry if I'm a little scattered because again, my brain is still just a little bit, ah. My my question we've, the whole thing has been sort of stream of consciousness scattered so i hope that everyone <laughs> has stuck with us <laughs> yeah but i think one of the ways that we have to start thinking if we even want to use the word utopia now is come on a very clever 17 year old can be like all utopias are pointing us toward fascism yeah we know that so how do we how do we find one that takes us not that doesn't strip us of our individuality but realizes that things aren't going to be immediate that we're going to have to sometimes go slower and listen to one another and think really deeply about how we treat each other with dignity how do we treat the land we live on with dignity? How, how do we find a way to live that, and this is so hard I'm, because I'm also a little emotional because it, it can feel impossible but when you start thinking and radically imagining with other people, like how to be kind, how to be good. I mean, that's mutual aid funds. How do we stop, how do we silence our inner police people who feels like 
well, if I'm giving them $5, they better not be drinking with it. And instead of using the ways that we think people should behave, like, and this isn't again to say, oh yeah, do whatever you want. It's fine, we'll just listen and talk to each other. But it is thinking really deeply about even what it means to give someone something with no expectations, to just want them to have something and not expect anything in return. Or to see someone in need and not say, you know what, I don't care if you have an addiction, this has to be for food. When, I don't know, I think you might as well not give that homeless person $10 if you have to give them a lecture mm -hmm. that this is only for food or for toiletries. If you care that much, go buy them the toiletries, go donate to the people who will actually give them the things that they need. We're in a crisis. And I know that also got a little stream of consciousness, but it's all part of that feeling of how can we be, how can we even build like an idea of justice if our justice system is so tainted that most of the time if you're going to prison, or jail, you are also becoming an indentured servant and working for a major corporation. Or, I mean, we don't even know the depth of how much inmates are suffering from COVID or from climate change. And I, I know this is really soft or tender, but I, I don't know if anyone can change and I don't think anyone really does change when faced with immense cruelty. I think immense cruelty just breeds immense cruelty. It, and I think that we're at kind of at a tipping point. We can either keep going in that line or we need to start finding different ways to treat other people and think about, okay, these ways were good, but the world is so different than it was even 50 years ago. And by the time we even hit 25 years from now, I can't imagine what the world's gonna look like. I, I can only say that, at least for me, the only way I can think of to keep living and feel comfortable living and want to be alive is through finding ways to get to give other people a chance or to feel like they're in part of the conversation or to give money or to stand up for other people. And I, I don't know if, I don't know if that's right, but I would rather live a life that's kind and makes room for other people's needs and wants and desires than live a life where I only think about myself. And I think that's, part of the root of what we're talking about in the book too is what does it look like in a, to build a whole nother place and this is a slight spoiler but maybe this will be this is a fine one but what does it mean <laughs> to like be in a place where for so long you've been viewed with scrutiny and suspicion because you're a woman and then they have people treat you tenderly to want to hear what you're thinking, to want you to learn and to educate yourself, to tell you that 
we do all these things together, we, we want, we want to build a world where people get to do what we're meant to do. Like the only way I can define what it is to be human sometimes it's the delight and pleasure we take from making things. And it doesn't have to be like this big monumental thing. Like not all of us are gonna invent, I don't know, an electric car that maybe doesn't shut down on the freeway and is accessible to people who aren't rich. But there is someone out there who's gonna do it and make it available maybe. And that's wonderful, but it's also just as beautiful to work in a bookstore and make a display and encourage people to educate themselves and to be creative and play. It's just as important to me that we keep expressing ourselves because if we don't, and if we don't keep making small, beautiful things and big, beautiful things, well, we're not people anymore, or at least not the type of people I think most of us want to be. I don't know if we could end it in a in a more beautiful place. <laughs> okay. With an with an encouragement for for everyone to go out and and make something beautiful, no matter how big, no matter how small. And if you're looking for a little inspiration or you're not sure where to start, you could start by grabbing a copy of The Women Could Fly by Megan Giddings at skylight books you can grab one in store we will have them let's see tuesday yeah yeah um we will have copies at the store or you can order one online um and i personally am so excited for everyone to get their hands on it and to be inspired by it and to enjoy it so much and i'm so grateful for your time today thank you for chatting with me megan Thank you for, I, just really quickly, just for all the love and care you treated the woman could fly with, like your questions and the things you just made me think about. Yeah, we digressed a lot, but they were beautiful and thoughtful. And I don't know if anyone else has read my book so closely, so far that I've talked to as you have, Natalie. <laughs> I really appreciate it. This was wonderful for me. Yeah, I'm so, I'm so glad. Thank you so much. And um yeah like I said I'm I'm so excited for people to to meet Joe and to to get to know her and hopefully my hope is that she gets people to ask some questions uh for themselves and of other people too because that will just just grow this little community that this book has the potential to start and that's exciting I hope so Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.